The following message by Alistair Begg is made available by Truth For Life. For more information, visit us online at truthforlife.org. All right, well, just on behalf of all of the guys, I want to thank all three of you for, um, from what I've heard, has uh, just been convicting and encouraging messages for us pastors. Yeah. Well, as typical with our basics Q&A, some of the questions are designated to specific uh, ones of you, and, and other ones are just general, but feel free to speak to all of them. Um, the first question, however, is designated to Herschel and Colin, and this is the first question. What practical things do you do to remember to bring your Bible into the pulpit with you? It's good. It's good. I, you know, I just feel like it's a mark of your general sanctification. <laughs> You're a funny guy. Um, on a serious note, there a question came in that goes like this. If, if there was only one book other than the Bible that each panelist would be able to put into the hands of every pastor here, which book would that be and why? I've I've got a ready answer. Step pretty stand. I get asked questions similar to that all the time, and I'm going to surprise everybody. But my favorite book to read, other than the Bible, is a book by a guy named J. Sidlow Baxter, uh, who wrote a book called actually it originally was six volumes called Explore the Book, and it's a devotional commentary on the whole Bible. He outlines every book. He and it's sort of put in lesson format you he'll tell you like read the book of jonah three times and then you do the first lesson and then he asks a series of questions but his outlines are amazing uh his insights are stimulating it's a devotional it's not verse by verse commentary uh it's a devotional commentary and every time i read it i it he thrills my soul and i I had the privilege of hearing baxter preach uh when he was 88 years old um, and he had the deepest, he made Adrian Rogers sound like a tenor. <clears throat> Can you imagine God chose us bypassing others? I got him, didn't I? That's, it was close. Okay. <laughs> so explore the book, Jason Little Baxter. In terms of, uh, a resource, uh, Matthew Henry. Use uh, Matthew Henry uh, time and again and, and find him really helpful. Uh, more generally, Pilgrim's Progress is a marvelous, marvelous insight into the nature of the Christian life. I find myself going back to it very often. Mm. Alistair? This might surprise you as well, but I would. The, the question is what one book should they have other than the Bible that would. Not which book do I like the most or anything, but I would actually say Calvin's Institutes. Yeah. Thank you. Um, We actually got a lot of questions that came in either from younger pastors that were starting out or guys who are considering ministry. And one was actually from, I would presume, um, a father of teenage boys who are 15 and 16 who are continually asking questions about the ministry, and they seem to show an interest and a desire for it. And the question is this, how would you recommend encouraging them in that desire without pressuring them into it? Well, I'm meeting at the moment with a young fellow uh, who is in a Christian school, and when they get to a certain point in their development, they go into a school of something. So they go into a school of business or a school of this. And apparently he got himself (laughs) in the school of ministry— and uh, so what I'm trying to do with him is convince him that he should get out of it as quickly as he can and, um, and get, get yourself into the real world for a while. I mean, in all seriousness, because the more I probed with him, I, I realized that uh, there's all kinds of conflicting emotions. He, he's zealous for God. He's interested in this. But um, he also loves cross-country running, and he's also clever. And um, I, I, I just say with young fellows like that, I want, to, I want to encourage them. If they were my kids, I would definitely want to encourage them in a, with a, in a cautionary sort of way. 
so that enthusiasm is tempered by um, an awareness of, you know, whether they've got gifts that are apparent or not. Testing it out in your youth group as well is, is good. I, I, felt, I felt called to preach like when I was 10 years old. And I realized how weird that was. I mean, I did. And I went into my dad's office and I said, I don't know how to tell you this, but I, I feel like God's calling me to preach. I know everybody's going to say this is just because you're my dad. I want to be like my dad. People are going to say, God didn't call 10-year-olds to preach. And my dad went, Hirsch, he said, just get used to saying yes to God. He said, you know, you're right. You're only 10 years old. But if God calls you to do something when you're 10, just say yes when you're 10. He'll clarify it. He'll refine it. But you just get in the habit of whatever God requires of you, you will say yes and he will guide you and show you what that is as you grow. Just get in the habit of saying yes. You know, that, that was great advice for a 10-year-old boy. And it's great advice for a 63-year-old man. Just be in the habit of saying yes to God. And I do think if you really say, I just want to glorify Christ, the Holy Spirit will always help you do that. That's good. Um, and then just to add, in, in teenage years, it's never too early to be making serious study of books of the Bible. And um, uh, so a, a fellow who feels drawn to, to ministry um, and a father who's wanting to encourage um, him in what he can do um, uh, to be putting together some serious study of some chosen books of the Bible, to be formulating some notes, to be taking advantage of any opportunities that there are to speak, um, is to be building a reservoir from which um, good will be drawn in years to come. Thank you. Um, I'm sure the three of you get a question similar to this often, uh, but how detailed of notes would you encourage a younger pastor to take into the pulpit with him? Well, I'm going to tell my Derek Prime story on, on this one, Alistair, if, if I may. So I, I was 21 when I preached at Charlotte Chapel, and uh, my, my wife was uh, there. We weren't married at the time, and I remember coming out afterwards and saying, don't say a thing. I thought it was an absolute disaster. I, I felt absolutely terrified. And uh, afterwards, Derek um, uh, was uh, offered to, to, to give me some help, and the first thing he said was, uh, uh, show me your notes. And, and I had some fairly, fairly rough notes from which I'd spoken not very well. And uh, Derek said to me, every young man should write out every word for the first seven years. And so I said, okay, well, I'll do that. So I phoned him on the seventh anniversary of being in London. I said, Derek, I have done what you said and now I'm incapable of doing anything else. But I, I've been immensely um, grateful for that advice um, uh, because having formulated um, uh, words um, gives, I think, actually a greater freedom of expression and a clarity of articulation. It's not for everybody. Um, I, I don't try and impose it on our guys, but I do see try this and see if uh, it works for you. And if it doesn't, then do something else. But it has been immensely helpful to me. I have this debate with my colleagues at Southern all the time. Abe Kuruvilla, uh is truly one of the greatest preachers I know. I love to hear him preach. And I said to him one day, I said, Abe, you're one of the best preachers I know. But if you get rid of that manuscript, you'd be better. And he said, Herschel... You're one of the best preachers I know, but if you'd use a manuscript, you'd be better. <laughs> There's really a case to be made both ways. Uh, I, I would say this. You just, if you use a manuscript, you've, you've really got to work hard to not sound like you're merely reading it. You have to do it with life and passion. And if you I use fairly detailed notes where I write out certain things and I call it breadcrumbs along the trail enough so that I, I know how to get home. Uh, but, uh, 
nice Cinderella reference. Or, no, that's not Cinderella. That's uh, Goldilocks. Uh, anyway, <laughs> I didn't get a British education. <laughs> Is that the one about the pigs? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, anyway, if you use spare notes, uh, you do lose. You tend to lose some precision. So uh, there's a there's a give and a take, uh, and you 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 really do have to work though on making sure that you are communicating. It's it is primarily an oral medium, and therefore I think it, it's not the same thing as writing. That's a, a written medium is a different thing. Uh, it's an oral event, and I think you should focus on the orality of preaching, uh, writing, commentary, blog posts, whatever, different thing to different different media. So be aware of the medium that it is and use it to its full advantage in personal connection. Yeah, just on the back of both of those, I'd say I do write, but I write to be heard. I don't write to be read. When I write a letter that is going to be read, I write in a different way than the way I write my notes to preach. Because in, as, as I write to preach, I, I know what uh, is being said here, and that is that, and that is why if you take my material as preached and try and use it as something written, it's, it, it's no good. Because it, the, any, any attempt at humor comes out as pretty banal when it's flattened on the page. And removing the absence of eye contact, pauses, whatever it is, that's not an affectation or, you know, we're not writing in our notes, pause, but just your natural ability to do stuff. When that goes, when that goes away, it's one of the reasons that I'm, I'm most uncomfortable when I'm in a foreign country and they, I, they say everything that I've said after me, because I I can I can't use any. There's no rhetorical dimension to it at all, and so the fellows that are very pedantic or much more organ, let's put it, much more organized, are are far better translated in that way. So, yeah, I I don't I wouldn't say that I have a manuscript that I take into the pulpit. I write in order to be clear. I write it out in order that I might read a paragraph and say. Goodness gracious, I started in the present tense. I moved into the pluperfect. I ended up who knows where, and, and nobody else will know either. So I've got to rewrite that whole thing. Because there are a few people that are able to move just from what's going on in their head to what's coming out of their mouth. The fact that you're good at it is uh, it's really annoying, actually. But that's, uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> so I want to tie two questions together um, in kind of a similar theme with uh, younger pastors. Um, this person asks, what advice do you give for the younger man who desires to be a pastor but has not been called to a specific place? That's the first question. And then what advice would you give a younger pastor who has been called to a lead role but is stepping into a place that has had a long-standing history with the, the prior pastor? Well, I would say if you've not been called to a place, you pre- prepare the vessel, prepare the man. Prepare, as Colin said, you saturate yourself with the scriptures. You really are establishing a storehouse from which you're going to draw things new and old as you preach and proclaim. So it's prepar- the call to preparation, you know, I'm the dean of Southern Seminary, but I don't think everybody needs to go to seminary. But I think everybody in the ministry has to be educated. How you get that education, whether it's formal or informal, doesn't matter nearly so much as that you get it. And so you really do need to be in the work of preparation, making yourself ready for when that opportunity comes. And following the long-term pastor, I'll just say buckle in. You're going to hear, you're no Bob Jackson. Uh, Just fill in the blank. You're going to hear it. And you just have to know that's just part of the territory following a long-term pastor, uh, there's a grieving process. They're mourning that he left. They, they, there was, they were comfortable with him. You're different. And for the first couple of years, every time they come to church, it's going to feel different than what they felt for years. That's not personal. Don't take it personally. 
just be faithful, keep doing what God's called you to do. And uh, I tell Chris Parrish, who's my successor, you know, they're going to look at you and go, no, we love you, but you're no Herschel York. That's just going to happen. There's no way around that. You just be faithful, preach, and uh, walk through life with them, and God will bless you and give you their hearts eventually. Um, yeah, I, Herschel, what you said last night in regards to times when uh, a person is not yet called to pastoral ministry from your own experience was so moving and, and, and so powerful and can't imagine anything further being said uh, 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 on that. In regards to uh, uh, becoming a, a new pastor, to love the people of God and to take time to get to know them, to respect the work of God that has gone on before you know, um, I arrive as, as, as the new pastor, uh, to take time over that, um, to recognize that trust is built over time. Um, I think all of these things are important perspectives, uh, especially in the first three years. Well, Herschel, this is a, I think it's a good segue to ask this question, maybe more of a general pastoral ministry question, but you just mentioned your successor. And one of the questions that we got is in regards to uh, retirement in pastoral ministry. And so uh, the, the person asks, uh, how can we set up our church for a transition from senior pastor retiring? And then how do you know it's time? to retire? Uh, there is no one answer to this. I, I can only tell you, uh, there were just a lot of factors that, uh, the Lord used in my heart to tell me that it was time for me to step out of buck run. I I'm not retiring. I'm still going to teach. I'm still going to be the Dean. I really want to have a ministry to pastors. It's not unthinkable that I'll pastor again. <clears throat> If the Waikoloa Baptist Church on the Big Island calls me, I'm going. It's just, <laughs> just know it. It will, it will happen. Uh, I won't even have to pray about that. I'll just say. <laughs> but uh, first of all, I, um, for, for me, I met with Bob Russell about this. Bob Russell did this extremely well there at Southeast and he's a dear friend and he and I had almost exactly the same experience that we had sort of a young protege that was gifted, that loved the church, the church loved him. And we really didn't want to see the church lose him. Uh, and other churches were coming after Chris Parrish, my, uh, you know, my senior associate, he's a phenomenal preacher, just so gifted he loves Buckron. Buckron loves him. And I could see his heart unsettled dealing with this other church. It was a church bigger than Buckron that was going to call him. And I just asked him, I said, this, this was five years ago. I said, let me ask, would you, would you rather go be a lead pastor somewhere now? I said, you're certainly ready. Not a question of your readiness. Would you rather do that somewhere else? Or would you rather wait around here? If I told you I was going to leave by January of 24, I mean, you're talking, no, I was... You know, I, I think it was six years out when we had that conversation. I said, would, would you be willing to stay that long and be content in your role and wait till then? And I said, and I can't promise you this because we're congregational. The church has to call you. But if you'll trust me with the timing, at some point I will present this to the church. The one thing I can promise is I will not be tepid in my support. But ultimately, it's going to be their call. And he said, oh, I'd rather wait for Buck Run. I said, okay, you trust me. And so in the summer of 21, I think that was 2018. I think it was in the summer of 21, I began talking to our leadership and told them my plan is to step out by January 24. Um, do you think that the church would want to go ahead and name Chris as my successor? They unanimously said, yeah, we do. So we, we sort of had meetings, these expanding circles. 
until finally we had a, a, a members meeting and presented it to the church. And uh, then we had set up a question and answer time and people could ask anything. And, and then Tanya and I went to the Keys one Sunday while Chris preached and they had a secret ballot vote. And there were only two negative votes in the whole church. And they're just cranky old people who don't want me to retire. <laughs> and they don't get to make that decision. <clears throat> uh, it, first of all, I'm not... I'm leaving Buck Run in order to do some other things that I feel God's calling me and leading me to do. And it just felt right. I wanted to leave more at the top of my game. And he was there. It it was not a stretch. All I can tell you is I just felt led of the Lord to do it. Uh, I do think it is a model. I've, I've spent my whole life training young guys, and I think it's time for me to tee him up. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's just, it's been a happy thing. One of the keys is we've told the church, you're welcome to feel two things at once. You're, he's not offended. You're sad. I'm leaving. I'm not offended. You're excited. He's coming. Both things are good. Both things are healthy, godly things feel both of them. And we're all good. And it has been unremarkable. There's, you know, people sort of thought, well, is there this, is everybody crying all the time? And like, oh, we're just going to be so sorry. On Easter Sunday, I told my staff, I said, no one, no one mentions this is my last Easter. It is about a risen Savior, not a departing pastor. And nobody did. People weren't, we had a really, really happy Easter. So we're not, we're not doing this year-long morning thing. About December, it's going to get rough. You know, we're, we're going to be, I mean, I love these people, and it has been a remarkable grace of God that I've gotten to be their pastor, and we've been through stuff together. I mean, there's just nothing like standing in that pulpit and knowing everybody's stories. You know, I mean, I just know what God saved people out of and who got healed from what and who's struggling with their kids going off into sin and all that. There's just no, nothing like being a shepherd. But I just felt in the purpose and plan of God, this was what he wanted me to do. Uh, And I I feel great about it. There's no, even though there's some sadness about that chapter ending, there's no remorse or regret. Uh, And I don't say this is the model that everybody should follow. It was unique to our circumstance, and, uh, and, and I'm happy that it's happening. Will you stay as a member of that congregation? I plan to until Waikoloa calls. Uh... I, I plan to, I, you know, I want my tithe to be there. We'll show up on Christmas and Easter. Uh, a couple of things. <laughs> I mean by that, I plan to be preaching places, you know, pretty much every, every Sunday. Oh, uh, yeah, we all thought that. Yeah, that's right. I could tell. I could tell. Adrian called them the Holly Lily crowd. I want to be a part of the Holly Lily crowd. Uh, so, you know, I, I, I do plan to leave our membership there unless or until the, the Lord could move us somewhere. There, there, you know, different things could happen. But I, I like my tithe going there, and I, I love the people there. I'm going to stay out of his way probably for the first year. I just won't show up except Christmas and Easter. And I probably will never go to a business meeting. You know, I pastored my predecessor at Ashland Avenue every time in business meeting. Anything I brought up, anything new to the church to do, you just felt everybody's head turn to him and just to see his reaction. And he, he was great. He never stepped out of line. He never caused me a problem. I just hated that feeling, and I'm not going to subject Chris to that. So I'm the only guy that can mess this up, and I'm determined not to. Yeah. All right. Um, Colin, this question is specifically for you. Uh, you mentioned Derek Prime's advice to you about splitting up your time into thirds. Um, so a third of the time preaching, a third pastoring, a third leading, I believe. Uh, but many men here are bivocational. Um, so the question is, what advice could you give to these men who are not full-time, but do desire to care for their flock, lead them well, prepare to preach well, and to see them grow in Christ? What advice would you give to them? No, well... Um uh, to be bivocational in pastoral ministry, I just have the greatest admiration for um, 
anyone who, who does that. But actually, the advice works, I think, still very well. Um, you're just working with less hours. But the nature of pastoral ministry is that it involves preaching and pastoral, uh, pastoring and, and leading. You, you have to declare the word of God. You have to spend some time with a flock of God. And um, even in a smaller uh, church, there's some structure, organizational leadership stuff that, that has to be done. So I've actually found Derek's um, uh, advice to be really, really helpful. And I think it works irrespective of how many hours one has to devote. You're, 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 you're just working within a different time frame. Okay. Anything you would like to add? I agree 100%. All right. So this question uh, comes to us, and it it says this, what would your advice be when a pastor is not only burnt out, but is questioning his own faith and salvation in the midst of seasons of doubts and despair? It's a heavy question. Uh, I heard... Calvin Miller. Did you know Calvin Miller? Uh, I heard Calvin Miller tell of this very thing happening in his own life while he was pastoring in Nebraska. He got, uh, he, he read Tillich too much and he began to doubt the existence of God. And he had a, a deacon whose brother was tragically killed and he goes to the house just to comfort them and, and, no prayer, no nothing, and he gets up to leave, and the deacon walks out with him to his car, and the deacon said, Pastor, would you pray for me before you go? And Calvin Miller looked at him and said, You know, Bob, I'm not sure there's anybody up there listening. And the deacon said, Well, then, Pastor, let me pray for you. And Calvin Miller said the kindness that that deacon showed him instead of just like, reacting to what he was saying was something that the Lord used to begin to bring him back. And he he went through that. And I I would say, I think probably uh, if a pastor is truly struggling with that deep of a question, he needs to remove himself from the pastor. Don't keep taking a salary just because that's your livelihood because you really aren't in a position to, to help people with their deep questions when you, you aren't settled in yours. But find someone who can kindly walk through that with you and be honest with them. Don't try and go through that alone and say, here's, here's what I'm struggling with. I mean, a lot of great men of God have had deep, dark nights of the soul, and they've asked these questions. I don't think you're, you're – in the shape to be shepherding people while you're going through that. So step, I would say step aside and step down, but get someone who can walk through it with you. So maybe on the the heels of this, uh, this and read and read Psalm 73. Asaph, my foot had feet had almost slipped, but then God met with him and, uh, May that be an encouragement to the brother who wrote the question. Yeah. Thank you. So this, this person asks, most pastors I know are highly motivated individuals, and they tend to work more than a full schedule that has effects on their health. And so he asked, um, what would you recommend to maybe a younger pastor and even a seasoned pastor from a health perspective regarding schedule, would that, whether that's a full day off each week, regular exercise, a sabbatical? How do you guys work through that at your your churches? Well, you know, all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. And so the Sabbath principle is foundational in creation, and therefore it's it's of vital importance that uh, there is is an organized, I think, organized plan whereby we have time off. And— uh, you know, John Stott, of course, was a bachelor, but Stotty, when you read him, he had he had uh, one day, what was it, one day a week, um, one week a month, one month a year, um, and of course he was free from the responsibilities of raising children or anything like that. But the the principle I think holds that he recognized you you have to find a way to re- refill the 
the battery. And so if, if there's not a plan put in place that is um, shared and understood by one's colleagues, and particularly whoever the leadership of the church is, then it, it will soon catch up on you, I think. So, yeah, all of the above, all, all, all of that. I mean, I take a Tuesday as a day off. The reason I do that is because Derek Prime took a Tuesday as a day off. I thought, if he does it, I'm doing it. I mean, if it, it look, look at how good he is. Maybe, maybe something will rub off. It never rubbed off, but I still take Tuesday, you know, so. Still, there's still time. <laughs> Not a lot. <laughs> no. <laughs> I, I, I just throw in uh, the, the, the day and the week, uh, really important. And planning vacation. Now, this is probably a British thing, Alistair, but in the UK, um, the week when the greatest number of vacations are planned is the week after Christmas. A huge trade. And I remember being really surprised coming across here and talking to uh, the pastors on the staff saying, you know, uh, uh, where, where, uh, when are you going for a vacation in, in, in the summer? And you'd be in May. And, well, you know, we, uh, I, I might take a, a week sometime in July. And go, you haven't planned it? Um, uh, no. And I found that was quite often a pattern. And I find myself saying, oh, Plan your vacation because uh, you've got 10 weeks of looking forward to it. Only 10 weeks till we go. Only nine weeks till we go. There's something in having a rhythm in life in which you look forward to something that's planned in the calendar and um, you do something with it. And it doesn't need to be something exotic, but uh, have it planned. And I find that to be a great blessing in my life. That is one of our keys. Tanya and I always have something on the calendar we're looking forward to. And, you know, when we were broke, first 20 years we were married, we were broke. We, We had no money. We had to get creative. We did cheap vacations. We stayed with my sisters and her, you know, their husband. And uh, we, you know, we found ways to do stuff completely, you know, basically mooching off somebody else. But thanks for being honest. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but you know, the, the second half of our marriage. Yeah. First of all, I've got two jobs, and and. Uh, we've got, and we're empty nesters now. We've got discretionary money, and, and we can we can go to Hawaii. We can do those kinds of things. You got a problem and, with Hawaii, man? You got uh, uh, Hawaii is like <laughs> man, it's amazing. Uh, I think it's a besetting sin, don't you? That's a, that's... But I'm I'm also rewarding her for those first twenty years. Oh yeah, yeah. You know, it's like oh yeah, blame it on your wife. That's yeah. good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> It's, it's my husbandly duty. So, yeah, but we do. We like, we always keep something on the calendar. We're always looking forward to it. When we get back, we plan the next one. And, and also I struggle with a seasonal effective thing. Uh, Kentucky winters are gray and cold. And the older I get, the less I like them. So in the winter months, I'm going to, I'm going to figure out how to get to Florida, you know, we, we, we rent a cottage in the Keys in December. Uh, January, I'm going to preach for somebody in Florida. Uh, February, we went to the North Shore of Hawaii, took my, our grandkids this year. And uh, you know, a, little, a little church there in Hawaii, pastor asked me, he said, hey, would you come preach at a little church in Hawaii? And I'm like, yeah. And he said, we, we can't pay you anything, but... We've got these folks in our church that they have a wonderful house on the North Shore. I said, sign me up, man. And so, you know, we we went to Hawaii and stayed free in a house that rents on Verbo for $4,000 a night. You're not you that spiritual, are you? Do you have that address? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, man, the, how gracious of God. We, but that helps us. But I'm going to tell you, you doesn't have to be Hawaii. You know, it can be anywhere, but keep something out there to say, oh, we're going to get away. We're going to do this just to break the routine and be with your wife. It's just so important that you invest in one another. You can get another church and they can get another pastor, but you really have to invest in your marriage. It's just so important to everything else you do. Yeah. 
I, I always tell, I tell Sue, you know, when we go through the teenage years, I, say, I always say, hey, listen, they leave, we stay. They leave, we stay. So we, exactly, we got to be together on what we're doing. So the, just flipping at the other side around, though, about this idea of rest and, and uh, vacation and relaxation and whatnot, failing to do that over a period of time will, will have an impact and, and almost certainly for ill. And often when we get into things, we're the last people to recognize how much tiredness is actually affecting our mentality, our attitude, and so on. And so it's important when somebody points that out to us. I remember early on, one of the doctors at the clinic who was an elder here, he came to me and said, you know, I think you need to take a couple of days and uh, just, just walk away from things for a moment or two. And what he was really saying was that, and so I've made a note to myself that when I get particularly tired, I'm not going to write important letters. I'm not going to try and evaluate somebody's spiritual welfare. I'm not going to try and evaluate my own spiritual welfare. And I'm not going to consider the possibility of uh, running away to Hawaii. <laughs> that explains a lot. <laughs> So, so both of you have mentioned the importance of your relationship with your wife. Um, what should pastors refrain from sharing with their wives, uh, whether it be from a board meeting, an elders meeting, a deacons meeting? And could it be harmful to not share things in, in your marriage? How much do you share, and could it be harmful if you don't share enough? Uh. I never share with my wife anything on my plate, first of all. So, you know, that's my food. Don't, don't touch that. No wonder she eats that stuff. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So, uh, you know, this is a, really is a function of your, your wife's personality. I, I, I don't think there's a set rule here. I think you need to dwell with your wife according to knowledge. Uh, when I first married Tanya, I cut right to the chase. I said, look, I'm going to feel free to tell you anything until a, you tell me you don't want to know, or B, you betray a confidence. And if you do that, I'm not going to get mad or upset, but I will not tell you anything else. And in 42 years, she's never once betrayed any confidence. She, she is able to see people hurt me, wound me, and she doesn't feel the need to lash out or treat them any differently. She, she's able to do that. Not every wife could do that. If, if I felt she couldn't, then I wouldn't let her know that someone said something to me, hurt me or whatever. Uh, but she's been able to handle it. Uh, there are times I don't share something with her just because I think she just doesn't need another burden on her, but it's not because I fear she would react badly. But Frankly, people have different personalities, and you just have to recognize the personality. If they have a, a problem uh, telling the confidence, then you know, don't tell them. If they have a problem dealing with anger, then don't lay anything on them that will cause them to be angry. You need to tell them enough so they know what's going on in your life, and they can pray for you. But, uh, but do only what is really for her good. I'm far more cautionary than that. Um, partly to—I uh, I, I, want—so, for example, at our elders' meetings, it's always—it goes like this. Uh, hey, you're home. Yeah, I'm home. How was it? I said, it was great. It was a great meeting. And she always says to me, that's all you ever tell me. I said, it's a great meeting. I could tell you if it was a bad one, but we haven't had a bad one, so it was great. Relax. And, um, <laughs> I, you know, I didn't, get, I didn't get fired. We're good, you know. <laughs> Um, but I, because of what you were saying earlier about you look out in the congregation, you know all this stuff. I regard that as a peculiar privilege that is granted to me as shepherd of that flock. I don't want to burden Sue with that knowledge, and I don't want to make her vulnerable in the grocery store. I want her to be able to say, I don't know. He doesn't share that with me rather than she now is confronted by a question, well, I heard Mr. and Mrs. So-and-so's thing was up on the roof, and there's got a problem with the thing and everything. Sue's so like, hey. And so 
I'm, I don't think I'm depriving her of anything that she needs to know, but I'm seeking not to burden her with anything that could be a, could be a challenge to her. And again, I think I'm heavily influenced by Derek Prime in this stuff, who took it even further than that, because, you know, Derek, Derek was uh, removed even from particular friendships with any of his immediate elders um, be, because of those things. I still have a bit of a legacy of that, actually. It, um, I, I don't think he was absolutely right. Anyway, that's the answer. Um, <clears throat> the only, I don't want to have secrets from my wife except secrets about good things that are going to happen. Um, I don't want to—she uh, got access to everything in relationship to my own personal life. But in terms of church life, I just want her to know that things are good when they're good, and I would tell her if they weren't. So uh, Mother's Day is coming. Uh, the question came in, how do you honor mothers properly in the church without causing undue hurt to women in the congregation who have either suffered from miscarriages, infertility, uh, abortions in the past, things of that nature? I make a point that we're celebrating motherhood. And I think everyone can celebrate motherhood. We're grateful for mothers. We're or gra- Robin Hood. <laughs> Robin Hood. Yes. It's clearly the end of the conference. We're coming in the home stretch now, man. Yeah, I think you've just put the emphasis on that. I don't have mother's stand, that kind of thing. I started people. People are more sensitive now about that than they were 20 years ago. And so, okay, I recognize that sensitivity, and we we have baby dedication on Mother's Day, and so I dedicate babies, and we celebrate motherhood, and I do it in such a way that no one is like our, you know, we have a, quite a few spinsters in our church, you know, women that are never married, and we're not going to make them sit there while everybody around them is standing up, and you know, I, I have grown more sensitive to it, celebrate motherhood. Uh, and God's good gift of the family and and women, and uh, that way I don't think you're making people feel badly that they're not in that group. I absolutely agree. And the only comment uh, to add would be that the pastoral prayer is always a marvelous place to be able to recognize uh, situations where people struggle and genuinely to intercede in that regard. But I think it um, uh, it shouldn't cloud the fact that there's something to give thanks for. And uh, I really appreciate the way you've said that. Um, Herschel, I would imagine this question came from your breakout, but it's for all of you. Uh, but what advice would you give uh, to a young Christian who's not married, but who is dating in order to try to discern uh, what theological differences are deal breakers? <laughs> And what might be some red flags that would cause concern? Your personality has to come into play in this. Like, are you the kind of person that can tolerate differences? You know, if you're a five-pointer and your wife's a three-pointer, can you live with that? You know, I mean, you, you just because she's different doesn't mean there's a problem. It's only a problem if you interpret it as a problem. It's like so many things. The event is usually not the issue. It's the interpretation of the event. So there are people that have a wonderful marriage, you know, and they're very, very different on issues. It's not a problem because they don't make it one. I would tell you that the things that are core values, you have to share. You, you, you simply can't go through life with someone who doesn't share the same core values. Uh, and uh, if, if there were a strong disagreement between us about something that I held really dear, some first-tier issue, well— you know, that that would have made it hard for me to proceed with marriage. And this is the kind of conversation we had before marriage. I laid out for her exactly what I thought God was doing with my life. And I, I, I asked her questions about, she was, are you okay with this? And we explored our beliefs. And uh, frankly, those beliefs have been the least source of argument in our marriage. You know, those, those, that's not the that's not the stuff that's affected us. So I would just say you need to be sure that you're sharing those core values. And and 
not not only I mean this isn't uh, only a theological question. There's a, a an issue about devotion to Christ, and uh, the clarity and the depth of that um, uh, is significant alongside. Um, maybe maybe uh, we do two more questions here. So um, one question came in. It's easy to fall into the comparison trap as a pastor, both. Internally, you compare yourself to others, and then externally, feeling your congregation compare you to people they listen to on podcasts and so on and so forth. How, as a pastor, can you avoid that subtle uh, but discouraging fall into comparison? Well, I, I made peace with the fact that they could watch much better preachers than I on YouTube seven days a week. What they can't do is have any of those guys shepherd them. And so I'm, I'm, I'm fine that there are better preachers than Herschel York out there. I'm grateful for that fact. I hope they do watch those preachers. I'm the, the Lord uses that. That's great. I don't need to be Alistair Begg. Um, pigs or no pigs. I just, I don't need to. I, I, but I do need to be their shepherd and it's, it's the showing up in their lives. It's the handwritten notes. It's the going to the graduation party and being there at the bedside when they're sick or, you know, preaching the funeral of their mother. Those are the things that bind you to the people in your church, just the, the shepherding things. And I, I would just say, do what only you can do. And don't worry about the fact that there are other preachers that are better than you. Just just be the shepherd. Yeah, what after all is Paul? What after all is Apollos? Only servants through whom you came to believe. You know, that on our best day, we're unprofitable servants. And, um, you know, it's, it's just great to be on the team. Um, if you've got to be the star, you're going to be a problem to yourself and everybody else. It's great to be on the team. I mean, I use that illustration all the time. I mean, when we played football at school in Scotland, it, it wasn't really all organized like here. You went, in the, you went in the science lab on a Friday, and the guy who was responsible for the, game, the games teacher came in, and he assigned—he he threw jerseys to you. You know, he, get, he threw a jersey— and you, you went in there, you didn't know you were getting a jersey or not. And if you were like me, you're like, I don't care what number's on the jersey. I just want a jersey. I want to be on the team. And uh, if, if we really believe that in our heart of hearts, no matter what other people think, and they can make their own judgments, if that's how we're going at it, then it'll be okay. It'll be okay. Well, I think this will be a good question to end on. Um, Herschel, it actually goes back to a statement that you said uh, where you said of your church <laughs> that you can disagree with my decisions, but please trust my heart. What are things that pastors can do to bring their church to a point that they actually begin to trust his heart? I, I, I'm just transparent on everything. I am all, I tell our church the reasons behind every major decision I make, you know, and, uh, you know, we set a spirit and a standard in everything we do. And I don't act threatened, upset. I've learned to, I'm just going to make sure I'm not the guy who brings tension in the room. So during COVID, people wanted to meet with me about our decisions. I met with every one of them. Oh, I'm, I'm happy to explain to you exactly my thinking and why we're doing this or not doing that. Uh, when the George Floyd stuff occurred, you know, I had people, I had the whole gamut of people interpreting what I did as too much, too little, you name it. Uh, and I was happy to meet with them and explain exactly, here's my thinking, here's, and you're free to, you're free to disagree with me, but I hope you know I'm doing my best here to try and honor the Lord Jesus, to keep our church united and you again, you can think I should do something else, but surely you can see that what I'm desperately wanting to do is glorify Christ. And I'm asking you to then live with the difference and the disagreement. If you trust that that's what I'm trying to do. And just to articulate it like that, 
has gone a long way. And so you just have to keep telling them, you know, I can make mistakes here. I can make bad decisions. You're okay to think that. But please know with every fiber of my being, I want to be a faithful shepherd. I want to honor the Lord Jesus. Uh, and, and I want to lead this church well. So you pray for me that I do that. And, you know, over the course of time, they just hear that over and over. They go, yeah, I mean, he's not led us down many blind alleys before. And, uh, and you, you just can't get threatened or bothered when they say, well, why'd you do that? Well, I'm happy to tell you that. And again, don't, don't you be the person who brings the tension in the room, diffuse it by the way you respond to it, explain yourself don't be bothered and just ask them to trust your heart. And over and over, they, you know, they, after a while, they sort of get the message. Okay, I'm free to disagree with that. But I do see, I do think he is trying to honor the Lord. Yeah, I so appreciated uh, what you said, uh, Herschel, about not having to win um, every time. That was a, a immensely helpful. I mean, in terms of um, uh, uh, winning trust, um, preach the word faithfully in a way that makes it evident that you've received it into your own heart before you've brought it to others. Um, walk with the people of God and and uh, love them and care for them uh, genuinely. And then listen to the other leaders that God places around you. It was so helpful in, in, in what you said um, in that regard. And I think one of the challenges of this is that you know, those who have been to seminary, um, we could perhaps most often run a theological circle around uh, other elders in the church. Um, and actually, because we're able to do that, end up with an authoritarianism that we didn't intend, um, that means that actually we don't really listen because we can articulate perhaps better than some of them can. Um, that's a huge danger. And uh, I find it helpful to remember that pastors are not kings. Uh, we come to serve, and we serve alongside others. And if we're wise, we listen to them, and we will gain things that they see that we didn't see that also will be helpful in gaining trust. And uh, thank you again for the, the way that you made that point. That's why we invited these fellows here. Yeah. You've been listening to a message by Alistair Begg from Truth For Life, and you're welcome to pass this sermon along to others, but please don't charge for it or alter it without written permission from Truth For Life. This content has been provided to you free of charge by the generous supporters of Truth For Life. For additional information about how you can support Truth For Life, please visit us online at truthforlife.org. There you'll find free message downloads from Alistair Begg, as well as links to our podcast, mobile apps, and other resources to help you grow in your Christian faith. Again, the website is truthforlife.org. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter to stay in touch with Truth For Life and Alistair Begg. Truth For Life, where the learning is for living.